This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that, plus members-only bonus episodes with extra clips and commentary. Sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the art and science of apologies and forgiveness. Now, today's episode is a little bit different, so I'm going to start it a little bit differently. Uh, for instance, uh, topics are usually voted on by listeners. I, I talk about this frequently. You can go to Patreon and, and vote each weekend on what topics you want the show to cover in, in the upcoming weeks. And this is not one of those episodes. Uh, I'm going rogue, as I sometimes do, because I found a topic that it, it came out of other research and other thoughts and, and came together in a really interesting way. And so I want to share it with you. There are a lot of reasons to talk about apologies and forgiveness. The research that inspired this are topics like the blackface scandal and people apologizing for that. And then the discussion about how and when do we forgive people like that and the Me Too movement. There have been lots of public apologies for Me Too related incidents and related discussion about how and when do we forgive these public figures and allow them to go back into the public sphere. And speaking more broadly, I have heard it said, I wish I could remember exactly where, that humanity is at a place we have never been before, where society internationally is sitting all at one big table for the first time in the history of humanity. Globalization, the internet, international communication, just the ease of communication around the entire world is, is making it so that we can have discussions that span around the entire world instantaneously. Now, of course, societies have influenced each other through the ages, but now it can happen almost instantaneously. So, so it's been described as, as we're all sitting down together for maybe the first time. And so for an occasion like that, it, it strikes me as all the more important to go back and relearn our manners that help humans get along with each other. And, and so for today's episode, we're getting to the absolute basics apologies and forgiveness. And before we dive into it, there's an underlying dynamic that I want to, I want to plant this in your head and have this going through your mind as you listen to the rest of the show. And the dynamic to understand is the concept of power and strength, which are not the same thing. And to help explain this, I, I couldn't believe I came across this clip that, that describes it so well. I don't usually delve into the realm of fiction, but uh, as, as many fans of the fantasy genre will attest, many a truth told in fantasy. And so uh, there's this show on Netflix called The Dragon Prince. And I heard something on that recently that struck such a chord and I think frames this topic so well that I want to share it with you. So this clip, it's about one minute long, that you're about to hear is a letter written by a king who sees the end of his time coming and he has written a letter to his young sons who he know he knows will you know take over after he's gone and he tries to impart some deep truths about humanity and society 
that are important for people in positions of power to know. When I am gone, your brother Ezrin will become king, and you will be his partner, his defender, and his closest advisor. Soon you will both face a lie, the great lie of history. Advisors and scholars will tell you that history is a narrative of strength. They will recount stories of the rise and fall of nations and empires. They will be stories of armies, and battles, and decisive victories. But this isn't true strength. It's merely power. I now believe true strength is found in vulnerability, in forgiveness, in love. <laughs> there is a beautiful upside-down truth, which is that these moments of purest strength appear as weakness to those who don't know better. For a long time, I didn't know better. I ask you and your brother to reject history as a narrative of strength, and instead have faith that it can be a narrative of love. And so now, with those themes of power and strength creating the framework for today's episode, clips today come from Backstory, Freakonomics Radio, Criminal Injustice, The TED Radio Hour, The Science of Happiness, Hidden Brain, and Interfaith Voices. The thing I want to talk about is public apologies, because there have been so many of them in the news in the last week or two, um, and they all have to do in one way or another with the question of sexual harassment or sexual abuse, and they've been coming from politicians, from Hollywood executives, from celebrities, from newsmen. And first of all, the fact that it's happening en masse like this is interesting, but also interesting to me is the fact that they've all taken a slightly different form and they're being judged kind of differently, right? Some are seen as sincere, some aren't really apologies. And so as a historian is wont to do, um, I really wanted us to talk about the historical context of this kind of public apology. What other moments have there been or what other apologies have there been that either really did work or didn't work? Well, I'll start with the apology that is generally seen as one of the most successful, and it was not an apology. It came from Richard Nixon uh, when he was running for vice president in the 1950s. Uh, General Eisenhower was at the top of the ticket, and Nixon got embroiled in uh, charges of corruption, accepting certain gifts in return for favors. Uh, and Ike, you know, many historians think was perfectly happy to get rid of Nixon at that point. And to get rid of him, he suggested that he go on TV because Eisenhower hated television. He figured that would really bury Nixon. And Nixon <laughs> appeared on television. It was set up as a living room. He was there with his wife, uh, Pat Nixon. And he pretty much knocked it out of the park. He referred to his dog checkers. It wasn't really an apology because the essence of it was he hadn't really done anything wrong. He had accepted this dog for his family. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me too. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station 
in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. And he went on from there to become a successful vice president and the nominee in 1960 for the presidential race of the Republican Party. So if we're looking at successful pseudo-apologies, that's at the top of my list, Joanne. Hmm. Hmm. So, so far, I mean, Nixon succeeded without apologizing, but we actually haven't had a, any apologies yet. Well, well, this is the thing. I mean, I, I'm I'm really hard pressed. You, you raise this question, and I'm racking my brain figuring out if there's ever a point at which somebody actually accepted responsibility for something that was wrong, right? I mean, if, if <laughs> oh gosh, if the, no, I mean, how seriously. about the Vietnam War, Nathan and Robert mm-hmm. McNamara? Is there a moment where where McNamara not expressing regret for the for the war, but actually responsibility for the decision to go into Vietnam? Yes, mm-hmm. he very famously apologized and said that he was a part of the problem. The mistake, of course, because this was not accepted very well either, was that he apologized decades after the war had ended. And there was uh, an endless line of relatives of people who had died in the Vietnam War Mm -hmm. because of the decisions that McNamara had made. So where was that apology when it would have really mattered? But I I do think that, uh, Nathan, you asked for a real apology. I I do think that McNamara's apology was quite real. It certainly led him into a world of hurt. So, Brian, those were really interesting and useful. As it turns out, the 19th century offers a, a case that bears a lot of resemblance to today because it's really about sex, and it's about a public shaming. The problem is that it's the shaming of the woman rather than the man in this case. It's 1884. Grover Cleveland is running for president. The press uncovers a widely known story that he had fathered a child 10 years earlier, and the press wants to know what happened. They track down the mother of his child, Maria Halpin, who was a 38-year-old widow at the time. She said that he had relentlessly pursued her and that she finally consented to join him for a meal. And after dinner, he escorted her back to her boarding house. And then he had forced himself on her. She told him she never wanted to see him again, but five or six weeks later, she had to because she was pregnant. Mm. Lawyers become involved, and Cleveland sees to it that the child is taken away from her and that she is put into a mental institution. Wow. And so Cleveland's campaign knew this was going to come out, and so they decide to play offense, and they decided to say that she'd been actually quite free with her affections with lots of men. And Cleveland had was actually a, a gallant by taking responsibility because he was the only bachelor in the group. The press finds her. She's now out of the mental institution, and she gets an attorney. And the attorney shows a document that, upon an agreement of $5,000 from Grover Cleveland, she was going to surrender her son and make no further demands of any nature whatsoever upon the father. Mm. 
So there's bribery and a documented record, and she is you know defiant and she's brave and she's out speaking about all this. So what happens? Cleveland actually never apologizes, even though his opponents develop a chant: "Ma ma, where's my pa?" And the Democrats oh, answer, "That's where that comes yeah, from." And the answer by the Democrats: "He's gone to the White House." Ha ha ha. So Ooh. if you want an apology. How about that one as a non-apology? Oh my Was goodness. it better back at the beginning? Did we used <laughs> no. to know how to apologize? No. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And and what I've been thinking about is, you know, what was probably the nation's first, maybe first scandal, but definitely first sex scandal. Uh, and that involves Alexander Hamilton, who was accused of misusing treasury funds. And he steps forward in front of the public and he writes this pamphlet in which he essentially says – no, I didn't misuse treasury funds. I actually committed adultery. <laughs> because in his mind, it's I'm willing to be a bad private man, but I'm not a bad right, public right. man. But again, mm. like everything else we've been talking about here, he didn't apologize. He just said, you got me on the wrong sin. Right, right. And if you mm. are out in the hurly-burly of politics, rather than apologizing, which would have been seen as weak and vacillating, instead you double down. So I think that what mm. your really good question shows, Joanne, is that there's not really much of a foundation on which recent apologies to be made. I think the two-party system builds a system in which to apologize is to admit defeat. And instead, what you need to do is to suggest that the person accusing you is somehow the one guilty of an infraction. Mm. It would have been exactly the same way in the workplace or in the home. Men do not apologize, nor do they take female charges of impropriety seriously. Basically, to back down either from a charge from a woman or from a political opponent was unmanly. This is the thing that I think, as historians, too, the thing that we're really grappling with now is this thing of, like, the historical apology, right? Like, Will the United States ever really apologize, you know, for slavery? You know, mm. there really is a sense that we have to go back and now think about not just, you know, political missteps or in interpersonal crimes, but even in the in the long view, these bigger historical crimes that nations have committed and whether or not it's even possible to apologize for them. But the expectation of an apology is always lingering there. Well, and that's what's interesting to me is that and particularly right now, a, a lot of the public debate has to do with the question of whether these men actually apologized or not. And there's like a a, a demand, right, mm -hmm. that they should say, I am sorry for the thing I did. They shouldn't say, well, things were different then. Right. They shouldn't say, it's you know, I was a younger man. It's complicated. <laughs> All of the things right. that they've been saying. I'm sorry you believe that you were <laughs> hurt <laughs> by my alleged. Right. I'm sorry your feelings have been hurt by right. the thing that I did not do. Yeah. Right. There have been all of these roundabout things. But, you know, in the same way that we have, as Nathan was just saying, a sort of historical sense that apologies are due, maybe it has to do with the realm of the digital and the fact that we feel that we have closer contact. Maybe it's social hmm. media. Is there are there demands new and not the apologies? Well, I, you know, I, I'm a trained uh, historian, so I did notice a pattern in all of this, <laughs> which is that it is men who are the ones who need to apologize. Mm. And suddenly, as Mitch McConnell says, we believe the women. Is mm. that something happens oh, where the burden of proof shifts from mm. the person being accused to the person who has borne the injury. Right. But they're being held accountable to some degree by women, right? This is a moment yeah. where women are saying, hear me. 
right? You have not heard me before. Hear me. Right. We are insisting on being heard. And part of that is, and apologize. As long as you're hearing me, or as long as I have some hope of being heard, apologize for mm. what you've done that so obviously needs an apology and is never apologized for. My name is Karen Cerullo. Cerullo is on the faculty of Rutgers University. Yeah, I'm a cultural sociologist, and one of my interests involves studying media messages. How does the content and the formatting of these messages influence their effectiveness? Cerullo's interest in apologies grew out of her research on how the media reports acts of violence. I was exploring how the crafting of a message can make audiences view violence as either heinous or justified. Public apologies presented a kind of natural outgrowth of that work. After all, uh, apologies are meant to persuade people in making judgments about what the offender did. She partnered with another sociologist, Janet Ruan. We wanted to get a broad swath of apologies, so we analyzed apologies that occurred between October of 2000 and October of 2012. They included only apologies where the full text was available so that they could be analyzed. And furthermore, we wanted apologies um, that were highly visible, things that were covered by five or more distinct media outlets so that we could look at people's reactions to them and see whether the apologies were effective or not. Um, so following those rules, we gathered a sample of 183 apologies. So these were apologies, by definition, made by prominent people or organizations. For instance, Chris Brown. I felt it was time that you heard directly from me that I am sorry. The GOP official, Marilyn Davenport. I humbly apologize. Marion Jones, the Olympic athlete. I want to ask for your forgiveness for my actions. Kevin Rudd, the prime minister of Australia. We say sorry. We looked at some from companies too, CBS, Apple. Cerullo and Ruan then analyzed the format and content of these apologies. Now, by content, I mean what was mentioned, the victim, the offender, the act, what motivated the act, the context, the presence of remorse or some sort of offer for restitution. And by formatting, I mean, how did people order those things in their apology? What did they cover first, second, etc.? Because... We believe those elements would make a real difference in the apology's reception. They categorized each apology using a standard typology tool that covers five strategies. Denial, evasion, reduction, corrective action, and mortification. They also identified seven sequencing formats. Some apologies, for instance, start out by focusing on the offender, some on the victim, others on the context. Once they'd categorized each apology, the researchers then measured their seeming effectiveness. Every apology that we analyzed actually had poll data attached to it because the events were significant and visible enough that um, polls were done gauging people's reactions. Then they analyzed the data, controlling as best as they could for factors like age, gender, race, and so on. We wanted to make sure that it just wasn't about who you were or who your victims were, but that there was something about the message you delivered, the apology itself that was at work here. Okay, 
So what'd they learn? It turned out that what you say first and what you say last goes a long way in whether or not people forgive you. The beginning of an apology, Cerullo believes, is extra important because... Well, I think the first thing you say is priming the audience. That is, it's pointing them, cognitively speaking, in a certain direction. And it's uh, framing the action in a certain way. And that's why the most successful apologies in her research begin by focusing on the victim or apologizee, not the apologizer. Where you would start out by talking about your victim and talk very little about yourself or your own uh, justifications and end your apology by talking about how sorry you were and, if possible, uh, stating that you'd make some restitution. Those types of apologies were the most effective. Cerullo wasn't surprised that successful apologies start with the victim and end with a sense of remorse. Because in some ways, those findings mirrored research I had done on violent messages. That if you want someone to feel that an act of violence is heinous rather than justifiable, you've got to bring them into the story via the victim. But what did surprise her? Overall, we were surprised at how few people could make an effective apology. We really thought, given the kinds of people we were dealing with, that there would be agents and handlers and staff that would help in this regard. But really, less than a third of the apologies that we looked at were effective with the public. One of the least effective types of apologies are what we call offender-driven. And these start out by the person talking about themselves and then giving all sorts of information about the context and the motivation of their apologies. Um, That was one of the most common types of apologies. It was almost always ineffective. In other words, the kind of apology where you say, I'm sorry, but what you mean is, I'm sorry I got caught doing the thing I did, and now I'm really sorry I have to embarrass myself by issuing this apology. What occurred was unintentional, completely regrettable, And I apologize if you guys are offended. So what is Cerullo's general advice on how to give a successful apology? Number one, don't wait. Forget your ego, forget the advice of your handlers. Unless you're involved in a legal situation where you're advised not to speak, you should make an apology right away. Second, don't apologize for what people thought. In other words, you know, we've often heard people say, I'm sorry that people misunderstood me. I'm sorry that people misinterpreted or misread my actions. Apologize for what you did, not for what other people might have thought about it. Um, third, don't give context. We don't care, Roseanne Barr, if you were on Ambien. Uh, we don't care, as in the case of Samantha B. if you wanted to reclaim the C word. Um, we don't care, as in the case of Elon Musk, uh, if you were mad at someone when you made uh, an unfortunate uh, comment. Um, the why of what you did is less important to people than your regret and your remorse. And finally, there's really a successful formula that you need to use. Identify your victim right up front, then express remorse. And if it's possible, make restitution. That's it. That's really what people want to hear in an apology.
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Since 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they have revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Everett founded the company, naming it after her daughter, because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madisonreed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madisonreed.com, and use the promo code left. On October 17, 2016, Terrence Cunningham, this gentleman was then the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. He was also chief of police in Wellesley, Massachusetts for 17 years, a 30-year law enforcement veteran. He did something almost unheard of in American law enforcement. He apologized. He apologized for the role that American police have played in the past in depriving people of color of their rights and sometimes worse. Here is the centerpiece from that statement. Give a listen. This audio is from CNN. In the past, the laws adopted by our society have required police officers to perform many unpalatable tasks such as ensuring legalized discrimination or even denying the basic rights of citizenship to many of our fellow Americans. While this is no longer the case, this dark side of our shared history has created a generational, almost inherited mistrust between many communities of color and the law enforcement agencies they serve them. For our part, the first step in this process is for the law enforcement profession and the IACP to acknowledge and apologize for the actions of the past and the role that our profession has played in society's historical mistreatment of communities of color. Now, Chief Cunningham took a lot of flack for that statement from both ends of the spectrum. From police critics, uh, this just wasn't enough. It only addressed the past historical mistreatment, nothing about injustice in the present. And from people in law enforcement, it just seemed wrong. Why should they or Terrence Cunningham apologize on their behalf uh, for uh, injustices that happened so long ago that most of them were not even born? Uh, how were they responsible for that? Now, Chief Cunningham's statement contained an answer to his critics on both sides. He first addressed police who wonder why communities don't trust them, and then he addressed those communities. Again, listen to this. Many officers who do not share this common heritage often struggle to comprehend the reasons behind this historic mistrust. As a result, they are often unable to bridge this gap and connect with some segments of their communities. At the same time, those who denounce the police must also acknowledge that today's officers are not to blame for the injustices of the past. Now, our guest today shares many of the concerns that Chief Cunningham had and, and, and believes, as Chief Cunningham 
does, that it is important to acknowledge some of the harms of the past so that we can move toward the future together. More than that, in his own town where he is the chief of police, a town in the American South with its own difficult history, he has decided to take on this same problem and he's taken his own very direct action. We're going to hear that story today. Louis Deckmar is the chief of police uh, and the chief of public safety for the city of LaGrange, Georgia. Chief Louis Deckmar, welcome to Criminal Injustice. Thank you, sir. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you this morning. You've had a long career in law enforcement. You've been a leader in the field for many years. And several years ago, uh, I've read that you began to become convinced yourself that law enforcement needed to acknowledge the harms of the past in order to move forward in a better relationship with communities of color. Can you talk about how you came to that realization? Sure. As a student of the history, particularly uh, history as it affects our profession, um, policing, which, you know, is relatively uh, young profession. The uh, first modern police department was established in 1829, so uh, we're less than 200 years old. But I was familiar with, uh, unfortunately, the sad and checkered past of police agencies and, and the issue of lynching. Um, personally and professionally, it disappointed me that our agency had been a part of that history and that our officers still today uh, bear the burden of that history. And based on uh, that recognition, uh, it prompted the, of the acknowledgement and a, apology that we became involved in and, and uh, executed uh, this past January. Well, let's... Uh... Let's have a definition, I think, right off the top. When we talk about lynching, what we're talking about is something that happened mostly, though not only, in the American South. We're talking about extrajudicial, basically mob killings of people who sometimes were even in law enforcement custody, uh, sometimes were just taken, uh, uh, and, and these were people who were suspected, perhaps, of crimes, and sometimes it wasn't even that, and they were just killed by mobs, hung. Uh, shot, things like that. Yes, that's correct. Uh, I think the working definition of lynching is three or more uh, involved in uh, what is uh, a, uh, a vigilante uh, sort of uh, action uh, between 1870 and 1960. There were approximately 5,000 lynchings throughout the country. Uh, the vast uh, majority uh, were in the South, but uh, there were a few states uh, that were not affected at some point in their history by a lynching. Um, of those 5,000 lynching, about two-thirds uh, were African-American, and uh, and the others were uh, white or Caucasian. Um, frequently, those that were whiter and were victims of lynching uh, were supportive of, uh, of justice or equal treatment of uh, African-Americans, and so uh, were punished uh, as a result. Now, one of the things that seemed to be behind the apology by Terrence Cunningham when he was head of the IACP uh, was the thought that you can't move ahead into a better future where you build a better relationship between police and communities of color without acknowledging the past. I take it you agree with that. Yes, that's, uh, you know, that's not only unique to uh 
think institution, but that's the nature of, uh, I think, the human condition. If you've had an experience with someone or with an institution or someone that you care about has, um, you're not going to trust that individual or that institution until there's an acknowledgement that, uh, you know, wrong was done and uh, uh, it shouldn't have happened. And that as a uh, member of the institution or as the person that, you know, did the wrong, uh, assures that uh, that party that's been wrong that, you know, it won't happen again. So uh, I think, uh, you know, institutions carry the, you know, the burden of its behavior uh, in the past because the past uh, forms and influences the present. And it affects uh, those relationships today. Uh, despite the fact that uh, they may have happened generations ago. Ideas about forgiveness, which is something that on the surface seems like it should be kind of simple, right? You have a fight, you come together, you talk about it, one person or maybe both of you says sorry, and then you move on. Oh, in the best of all worlds, that's the way it would happen. Sadly, that's not the way it usually happens. This is Elizabeth Lesser. She's written several books about spirituality and healing. And Elizabeth says part of the process of healing begins with forgiveness. If someone were to say to you, you know, what's the point? Why should I even bother forgiving someone? What would you say? I would say, uh, what do you want in your life? What do you want in your relationships? And if you say, I'd like them to be harmonious. I'd like them to be free. I'd like not to be in a state of blame all the time or shame. If you answer like that, then I would say, look at what's unforgiven. Look at where you know you did wrong and you would like to go to that person and say, I'm sorry, can we start over? If you want to have a happier life, I would say, practice forgiveness. Is forgiveness about the other person or is forgiveness about me? It's always about both. It is very, very rare where... A slight that turns into a grudge that is in need of forgiveness is only about one of the parties. In most of our day-to-day situations with colleagues at work, with your partner, with your children, with your friends, most of the time, if you really got down with each other and put aside your pride and your defensiveness and you had those hard conversations, you'd find a place where both people had something to ask for forgiveness from the other and to forgive the other. And it's hard. Forgiving somebody is really hard. Why is it so hard? Well, I learned why it was so hard in the biggest way yet in my life. And I say yet because I'm going to keep learning this. But I learned it recently in the experience I had with my sister Maggie as she was fighting cancer and I was her bone marrow donor. Elizabeth told that story from the TED stage. Two years ago, my younger sister 
came out of remission from a rare blood cancer, and the only treatment left for her was a bone marrow transplant. And against the odds, we found a match for her, who turned out to be me. I come from a family of four girls, and when my sisters found out that I was my sister's perfect genetic match, their reaction was, "Really, you?" <laughs> A perfect match for her, which is pretty typical for siblings. In a sibling society, there's love, and there's friendship, and there's protection, but there's also jealousy, and competition, and rejection, and attack. When I discovered I was my sister's match, I went into research mode, and I discovered that bone marrow transplants are fraught with danger. If my sister made it through the near lethal chemotherapy, she still would face other challenges. My cells might attack her body, and her body might reject my cells, and both could kill her. Rejection, attack—those words had a familiar ring in the context of being siblings. My sister and I had a long history of love, but we also had a long history of rejection and attack, from minor misunderstandings to bigger betrayals. We were hesitant to tell our truths, to reveal our wounds, to admit our wrongdoings. But when I learned about the dangers of rejection or attack, I thought it's time to change this. What if we faced any pain we had caused each other, and instead of rejection or attack, could we listen? Could we forgive? Could we merge? Would that teach ourselves to do the same? After the transplant, all the blood flowing in her veins would be my blood, made from my marrow cells. Inside the nucleus of each of those cells. Is a complete set of my DNA. I will be swimming around in you for the rest of your life. I told my slightly horrified sister. <laughs> I think we better clean up our relationship. Can you tell me about about your sister, about Maggie? What, what was she like? My sister was the one in the family who. Everybody loved. She's just a completely creative, funny live wire of a tiny person. She was under five feet and just a little, little thing, but full of energy and brilliance and humor. And she was tough. You know, sometimes people who are really small get really tough.、Mm. So she had like a foul mouth at the age of like five, and wouldn't let anybody、um, think she was cute. And she became a nurse practitioner who took care of the rural poor in Vermont. And she was a farmer, and she raised her own food, and she slaughtered her own animals. And she also was a brilliant artist, very talented, very funny. And kept everything inside. What 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 happened with your relationship? Was there was there like a, a a break, or was it just that you guys grew apart? Was there what what created the resentment between you? Well, one of the things that created the resentment between us is that we were siblings. <laughs> I've never met any sibling who doesn't have both a loving and a real. 
conflictual thing going on. But the real split came when we were in our 30s and 40s, when I went through a very difficult period in my life when I got divorced, and Maggie rejected me. She turned away from me, Hmm. and I never understood why. And our children were cousins and loved each other, and even though we would visit, there was a real rift between us. And I never bothered to say, what is going on? I want more from you. What happened? And she never bothered to explain herself. So when my sister needed my bone marrow, we got really brave and said, what was that about? And explained ourselves to each other. I found out things that had been going on in my sister's life with her own marriage that were so tragic and she was too afraid to tell me and she was too afraid to be around me because she thought if she followed my lead she would have to make the same changes in her own marriage and she was terrified and afraid so it was easier for her just to cut me out Hmm. wow so so how how did how did it work i mean how did you how did you go about trying trying to fix your relationship before I had my bone marrow harvested, we actually went to a therapist several times. For me, that seemed like the natural thing to do because I'm such a psychotherapeutic person. For my sister, it was really out of the box of what she normally does. She's like more of get over it, go take a walk, you know, <laughs> like like she thinks a, a lot of what I do and think about is somewhat self-indulgent. But we both met in the middle where... We we found a way to talk to each other where we both could listen and we both could understand and get down to the marrow of who each of us really were. After the transplant, we began to spend more and more time together. It was as if we were little girls again. We looked at and released years of stories and assumptions about each other and blame and shame until all that was left was love. I left the hamster wheel of work and life to join my sister on that lonely island of illness and healing. We spent months together in the isolation unit, in the hospital, and in her home. My sister said that the year after transplant was the best year of her life, which was surprising. She suffered so much, but she said life never tasted as sweet, and that because of the soul-bearing and the truth-telling we had done with each other, she became more unapologetically herself with everyone. She said things she'd always needed to say. She did things she always wanted to do. The same happened for me. I became braver about being authentic with the people in my life. Was there a point where where you and Maggie just thought, wow, we wasted all these years by not um, by not trying to forgive each other? Yes. I think it was after the transplant, actually, and her body was indeed beginning to reject my cells. And we went back into therapy, and I was kind of beating myself up, maybe, for not being as completely loving and forgiving as I could be. 
And in that therapy session, when I was beating myself up, my sister said to me, You know, Liz, you don't have to be perfect to be my perfect match. Let's stop trying to be perfect and let's just be with each other. Did you feel like you guys got to a place where you both were totally reconciled? Yeah. And you know, I, I, I would have to say, I have never been as close and in love with someone as I was with my sister Maggie toward the end of her life. We were still, um, I'm sure if she had lived a long time, capable of getting into other skirmishes. But what happened was, in those moments in our therapy and afterwards, when we kind of looked into each other's eyes and put down the past, I, I have never felt more at one with someone as I was with her. After that best year of my sister's life, the cancer came roaring back. And this time there was nothing more the doctors could do. They gave her just a couple of months to live. The night before my sister died, I sat by her bedside. She was so small and thin. I could see the blood pulsing in her neck. It was my blood, her blood, our blood. When she died, part of me would die too. I tried to make sense of it all, how becoming one with each other had made us more ourselves, and how by facing and opening to the pain of our past, we'd finally been delivered to each other, and how by stepping out of time, we would now be connected forever. My sister left me with so many things, and I'm going to leave you now with just one of them. You don't have to wait for a life or death situation to clean up the relationships that matter to you, to offer the marrow of your soul, and to seek it in another. We can all do this. We can be the one to take the first courageous step toward the other and to do something or to try to do something other than rejection or attack. We can do this with our siblings and our mates and our friends and our colleagues. We can do this with the disconnection and the discord all around us. You know, I was, I was thinking, like, what, what is it that stops us from doing this? I mean, just, just to be the person who's the first to step up and say, you know, to say, I'm sorry. But then I think, you know, for me and probably for a lot of people, you know, we'd have to let go of our pride. I mean, I, I would have to compromise my principles or, or undermine my position. Yeah. You know, that, that cliche, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you are right, but actually rarely, because right precludes the other person's point of view. And so... Do you want to be right, or do you want to seek a, a, a true relationship with another person? And often that means saying, oh, man, I'm sorry. Let's start over. And some things just uh, you can't repair, right? I mean, there are obviously there are many examples, and you've been through them, and I haven't. I mean, you went through a divorce. I mean, some things just can't be fixed. 
Yeah, but forgiveness and fixing are two different things. There are some things that happen to us in life or there are some decisions we must make that are going to quote-unquote hurt another person. We we don't want our life to be one of being um, a doormat or having uh, no opinions or apologizing and and not and not seeking righteous indignation when it's called for. Forgiveness doesn't mean being a wimp. It doesn't mean being weak. It doesn't mean having no principles and no values. Sometimes we have to stand firm for what we believe and make really hard decisions. But when the fire is over, always in the ashes are opportunities to repair, to move forward without vengeance being required. That, that's kind of the way us humans seem to live. We make massive mistakes. We do stupid things. We do things to survive. And then there's an opportunity to learn from them and move forward with grace. And forgiveness and that gracefulness are very connected. So one of the counterintuitive themes that surprises people when we think about the science of happiness is how do we develop principled ways to handle the hard stuff of life? You know, bereavement and trauma, conflict and so forth. And one of the great lessons that we've learned in the science of happiness comes out of the science of forgiveness, which Rose did a practice around with the nine steps of forgiveness. So the first thing that we have to really grapple with honestly is that although there's a lot of prosociality in the science of happiness, at the same time, because we're individual beings with our own self-interest and our own desires, there's a lot of conflict that's just part of social living. Really funny studies by Judy Dunn and her colleagues showing, for example, when you study little four-year-olds and two-year-olds in American homes, they're getting into six conflicts an hour. The mom or dad who's around is getting into another half dozen conflicts an hour with one of the kids. So what that tells us is in the average American family, there are eight to ten conflicts every hour as we engage in the complexities of of family living. What this tells us is conflict is just inherent in human relationships and we need to forgive. So one of the really key theoretical discoveries about forgiveness, and it tells us that we have an instinct to forgive really comes out of the groundbreaking work of Franz Duval, who's a primatologist. He studies the bonobos and the chimpanzees and other primates in his research career, really important to the science of happiness. And he started to get interested in what he called peacemaking and reconciliation. There is this hypothesis out there called the dispersal hypothesis that if two primates are in conflict with each other, and they're tangling and they're wrestling and they're biting each other and pulling each other's fur or the like, it's really wise for them to disperse, to get physically far away from each other. That makes sense. And Franz was doing these observations of various primates, and he found, naturalistically, the opposite happens. That, in fact, what happens is the two individuals who are fighting will find opportunity to get closer to each other, or a third party will often bring them in into physical contact. 
And then he documented this systematic process of reconciliation, which really looks like the precursor to human forgiveness. So one individual will bow, they'll express certain kinds of vocalizations, they'll have open-handed gestures, and then the other individual will actually embrace that primate or groom them or come into close physical contact. It's as if what they're seeing are these initial elements of an apology almost, and then some sort of forgiveness. So in the human literature, we define forgiveness as having four components, and you really saw them in Rose's narrative. So you really work hard to accept the transgression. So Rose had to think hard at multiple occasions. Why was her dad sort of more loving in the outside world than inside with the family? You have to reduce this punitive tendency to seek revenge. You have to, as Franz Duval described, you have to really, instead of moving away from the individual, you have to come close and have the face-to-face, eye-to-eye contact. One of the great studies early in the forgiveness literature is by Charlotte Whitvliet, a professor at Hope College in Michigan. So what she did is she brought people to the lab and she hooked them up to measures of their cardiovascular physiology, capturing things like heart rate and the transmission of blood through the veins. And that measures how you know whether the person is fight or flight oriented. And she had people think about a kind of a a grudge that they had towards somebody else. They either kind of got into this process of thinking about their grudge and holding on to the grudge, which we love to do sometimes, or Charlotte Whitvliet had the participants release it, just to mentally imagine letting go of the anger that's associated with the grudge. And very nicely, what she found is just letting go of this grudge and forgiving the individual led to a calming down of stress-related response in the cardiovascular system. So it actually kind of calmed your fight-or-flight response. Forgiveness has these physiological benefits. We're talking with Andrella Dubé today, She's an assistant professor of political science and economics at New York University. Andrella finds that traditional forgiveness ceremonies after brutal atrocities can achieve the kind of reconciliation between neighbors that many of us might consider impossible. The ceremonies don't just affect the individuals involved. They have a big impact on community ties and cohesion, what researchers would call social capital. You know, what we find is that the reconciliation process was inordinately successful in healing the community. So we've talked about forgiveness in this particular anecdote, but when we look at the data, we find that it actually fostered forgiveness on a widespread level. Um, We have these measures from um, uh, the psychology uh, literature that we use to gauge affect toward former combatants, and we find that, you know, people report nine months or up to 31 months later after these bonfire ceremonies that they have forgiven their perpetrators to a greater degree. But they don't just feel differently. They're actually behaving differently as well. There are more friendships in the community. People say they rely on each other more for help. They participate more in civic associations like PTAs and village development committees. They also contribute more to their communities. Uh, They give more to families in need. They spend more time and resources building schools and health clinics. Um, They really changed the community orientation of their behavior. 
so you, you find that there is this extraordinary effect as much as almost two and a half years after these ceremonies, that the ceremonies have brought people together, people are cooperating more, people are not just cooperating with the perpetrators, but in general displaying all kinds of other ways in which social capital and social cohesion has increased. But you also are finding that there's a potential downside. Can you talk about that? What we find is that, you know, this process of talking about the past is actually painful and personally difficult for people um, as manifest in worsened psychological well-being in these communities. So we have, you know, three different measures that we look at, measures of anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and depression. And we find that all three outcomes are actually worse in the communities that have gone through this process. And we think this is consistent with the idea that going through these memories of war uh, in a short, intense fashion can actually reopen some old wounds. But when you've forgiven someone and you've made the effort to forgive someone, you would think that has a healing effect on you, that you basically, yes, you're reminded of the terrible thing that happened, but you have found a way to master it. Why isn't that not happening? It's complicated to think about how forgiveness translates into, you know, personal psychological well-being. Um, On the one hand, it might have this healing effect. On the other hand, these war memories are so potent and so powerful, and now they have been re-invoked. So you might feel better toward the person. You might be able to forgive the person for the things that they have done, but at the same time be coping with these traumatic events. We think that It's the way in which these memories are brought up in this kind of short, intensive manner without follow-up for dealing um, with the negative images and feelings um, that actually lead to this worsening of the psychological outcomes. Say a little bit more about that. You're saying that there's something about this process, this very dramatic process, that might be good for social cohesion, but not so much for individuals. The reconciliation process allows people to collectively acknowledge what's happened and allows them, in a sense, to be able to move on. Prior to going through this process, you know, many people avoided certain places and certain activities on account of the fact that they knew that the perpetrator, the person who was responsible for either hurting them or hurting their family members, uh, would be present in those areas. After going through this public acknowledgement uh, and this process of, you know, confronting what's happened, Many people have been able to, you know, find closure in that event, in a sense, and now are ready to interact with other members of the community. This is the sense in which reconciliation can serve as a powerful force for societal healing. But at the same time, these negative consequences uh, on uh, the individual psyche are still there. And I think the question now is, how can we harness these very powerful societal benefits and conduct the reconciliation process in a way that mitigates the psychological impact. It may be possible, for example, to couple these types of programs with ongoing counseling so that people are able to better cope with the negative memories that are re-invoked. 
I'm wondering if you um, have a sense on why it is there has been this persistent view. Uh, maybe this is just Lehman's perspective, but there's been this persistent view that forgiving other people is psychologically healthy for you. That idea that it's not just good for the perpetrator, but it's actually good for the person who's doing the forgiving is such a widespread view. And I, I don't think your study basically says the two things can't go together, but it says the two things don't automatically go together. That's exactly right. So, in fact, there's been work in the psychology literature um, that shows that forgiveness is a, a positive psychological force. But, you know, one has to think about the positive benefit that comes from that and weigh that against um, some of the negative benefits that comes from reinvoking these memories. And I'm wondering, in terms of your recommendations, so when you think about this, do you think this is, uh, it's one study, it probably would have to be replicated again in maybe a different context to see if the same result holds up, but are there implications that you think that we can draw from this study and how we're thinking about reconciliation in other contexts? Absolutely. So, you know, every reconciliation process um, has some elements that are unique, but this one has all of the core elements. So, you know, this is a context in which um, uh, victims are sharing their accounts, in which perpetrators are admitting to crimes, in which no one is prosecuted. Um, in that sense, it has the core elements that we think of as common to a wide range of reconciliation programs. Um, so, you know, I do think this is something that applies to uh, a wide range of conflicts, um, not just Sierra Leone, not just civil wars in Africa, but any context in which, you know, people... Um, have gone through tremendous uh, acts of violence and, and now we're at a point where they need to find a way of restitching together the fabric of society. Forgiveness is something that is frequently misunderstood as a kind of weakness, of kind of letting people get away with things. That's Reverend Mark Schaefer, the chaplain at American University. He spoke with our producer, Stephanie Lecce, about what role forgiveness plays in our culture and in faith traditions. Theologically, forgiveness has to be understood from a position of strength. The concept of forgiveness itself is an economic term. I mean, it it's related to debt forgiveness. And so when you think of the creditor versus the debtor, when you realize who in that situation has the power, is it the creditor or is it the one who has the debt? It's clearly the creditor who has the power. And so it's not meant to come from a place of weakness or victimization, meaning that you have to forgive those who are oppressing you or those who are abusing you. It comes from a position of strength and power where you have every right to exact some kind of penalty and nevertheless choose to forego exacting that penalty. Now, many religious traditions value the concepts or, or the ability of people to forgive. Can you give us kind of a, a brief understanding of the different iterations of this idea of forgiveness in religious traditions? Forgiveness is something that we hope for from God, that therefore we model forgiveness toward one another. In the Christian Lord's Prayer, the forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, is meant to highlight that connection. As God is merciful, so we too are merciful. And so what it becomes in 
many religious traditions, is an expression of God's mercy that we have already received. And so forgiveness then becomes an important spiritual value and also a recognition that we are in need of forgiveness. That's really where it comes from, is the idea that we are imperfect, we are sinful, we have done terrible things, and we rely on God's forgiveness. Therefore, let us also extend forgiveness. Um, you see that in much of the prophetic tradition in Judaism. You see that in Christianity and a lot of Jesus's parables. And you see that in the Islamic tradition, where God is presented as oft forgiving, oft merciful. Now, is there a difference between the common cultural understanding of, of forgiveness and forgiveness as you've described in, in some of these religious traditions? Absolutely, I think there is, because I think what forgiveness is seen in our culture, as, as I sort of hinted at earlier, is basically capitulation or weakness. You know, that is, I do something to you, and then you're expected to forgive me. And that if you forgive me, then basically... I've gotten away with something. And I think that that is a misunderstanding of what forgiveness really is. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean there are no consequences, which is how I think people perceive it, is that if you forgive something, then it's as if it never happened. And that's not the case either. For If we go back to the creditor-debtor illustration, if I'm the bank and you owe me a million dollars, I might forgive your debt, but I'm never going to lend you a million dollars again, right? There's, so you are free of the consequences of this wrong, but that doesn't mean that going forward, it's reset to zero. There are still consequences even when forgiveness is extended. So I think that's something where in our culture, we tend to view forgiveness really as softness or weakness, you know, rather than really a, a statement of power coming from the place of one who is saying, no, I have the right to demand satisfaction from you, but I, in my power, am choosing not to exercise that right and claiming the, the narrative in, in that way. The other major difference is if you look at the, the biblical model of forgiveness, forgiveness actually comes before repentance. In the biblical model, God forgives first, and then the people repent. That is, then the people make amendment for what they have done wrong. In fact, the Hebrew word for repentance, teshuva, literally means turning around. So it's a, a kind of a, if you think of the metaphor this way, of God sort of calling out to an estranged, alienated people, come back, I forgive you, and then inviting them to turn around and re-enter relationship. It means that the forgiveness comes first, which again, highlights just how much forgiveness is a statement of power rather than a statement of obligation imposed upon the person against whom something has been done. Let's get into those power dynamics a little bit more, particularly in the context of Me Too situations where power dynamics have been often used, leveraged against an individual in order for abuse or harassment to occur. That's right. And that's why you know, telling a victim of sexual harassment or sexual abuse that they need to forgive their abuser misunderstands what forgiveness is, right? I mean, that is, a person should never be asked to forgive either by the abuser, you know, as a matter of course, right? Saying, well, you have to forgive me if you're a faithful person or if you're a merciful person, you have to. Nor should there be a sort of a cultural expectation that, well, you need to forgive this person. It always needs to come from a position of strength. So if a person is still feeling victimized, is still feeling oppressed, they're not in the place where forgiveness is 
really possible because what they would be doing would be doing what the culture understands forgiveness to be. That is to be kind of rolling over and saying, well, I guess it's okay. It, it always needs to come from a place where the person has of their own free will said, I have been victimized. I have every right to demand satisfaction, but for my own sake, I choose not to, right? So that it's actually about, um, it's about the, the forgiver's letting go of the burden almost as much, maybe even more so than, than removing the burden from the one who needs forgiveness. That is, you know, it's a burden on me to carry around this anger and this hate and this, you know, sense of longing for vengeance or whatever. So I'm choosing to let that go. And so I think in the Me Too environment, we can't have a universally applicable rule that says, well, all these people who have suffered this kind of uh, abuse or harassment or discrimination need to be forgiving and let this go. That's a, it's an individual case-by-case -case determination made on really where that person is with what's happened to them and, and how they're feeling about it and how, whether they feel in control or not. Now, sometimes exercising forgiveness can give you a sense of control, but that, it needs to come from that place, I think. So when it comes to the Me Too movement, we really have to take a look at whether the victims are in a place where they feel sufficiently empowered in order to forgive rather than asking them to forgive from a, from a place of victimization. We've just heard clips today, starting with the introductory clip from The Dragon Prince on Netflix, followed by Backstory, which looked at powerful men apologizing through history. Freakonomics Radio explored how to optimize your apology. Criminal Injustice talked about the police chiefs apologizing for the legacies of their departments. The TED Radio Hour spoke with Elizabeth Lesser about forgiveness between herself and her sister. The Science of Happiness explained the science of forgiveness. Hidden Brain explained the paradox of forgiveness that can arise between the benefits of forgiving and the pain of working through the process. And finally, we just heard Interfaith Voices explaining the power dynamics of forgiveness. And we're going to be skipping voicemails today, but please keep the responses coming in to both my question about how much you should value electing candidates of non-dominant identities, as well as Grant's message we heard in the last episode in which he advocates for voting for violent misogynists who are indiscriminate in their bombing campaigns as long as they're a person of color and that you're a racist for not thinking something along those same lines. We've already been getting really interesting responses to that, and I'm sure there are more to come. And we're going to be getting back to that conversation next week. Today, though, I have more to add to these topics of apologies, forgiveness, power, and strength. So getting back to where we started today, the, the concepts of power and strength, I have found not just in all the thinking I've been doing about this in the last few days, but for years now, I've been trying to put this concept into words to, to really explain what's going on. And, and I think I'm getting there. And the way I see these two concepts as being almost inversely related, as in the more power you have, the less strength you need for sure. And therefore maybe this less strength you tend to have and vice versa. So this is almost an incidental side note, but uh, it is not the main point I'm making today, but this 
power and strength dynamic is why white male fragility is such a prominent phenomenon. Straight white guys have a hell of a lot of power, but we are incredibly weak. Not because it's our nature to be weak, but because our power has made us this way. That's why if you say something to a white guy and say, you know, hey, what you're doing is either sexist or racist, he is more likely to have a complete meltdown rather than to be able to do any sort of self-reflection. See Brett Kavanaugh. Inversely, members of non-dominant identities often have this inner strength forged from oppression that people like me only marvel at in envy. And as we heard in that opening scripted clip from the fictional show that I just happen to agree with the point that's being made, strength comes from a willingness to be vulnerable. So I want for men to be stronger than they currently are. And I think that we can achieve that by losing some of our power, leveling the power with everyone else in society won't just be good for everyone else because everyone's relative power goes up. It'll be good for men who will develop an inner strength that has otherwise laid dormant. So whether through patriarchy, white supremacy, Christian supremacy, military supremacy, you can never be truly free when you have your boot on someone else's neck because that fosters the kind of weakness that makes you fearful and makes you cling to your power because it's the only thing you have left. But as I said, that's almost incidental. Back to apologies and forgiveness for today. I want there to be a lot more forgiveness in the world, but you don't get that in in a healthy way by going around and telling people to be more forgiving, unless you are also helping change the power dynamics so that the aggrieved parties have more than just the strength to forgive, but the power from which to forgive uncoerced. And there's a bonus clip that the members are going to be hearing that gets to this point in a really good way, but I'll tell you the quick story here. A Mormon girl was assaulted by a Mormon boy, and for religious reasons, the church put pressure on her to forgive him. The power dynamic was not in her favor. She wasn't allowed to forgive on her own terms or her own schedule, and being pressured in that circumstance, only made her feel more disempowered, and she ultimately lost her faith over it. So yeah, I, I want there to be a lot more forgiveness in the world, because it's it's a good and healthy thing to do on the individual and the social levels. But I'm not going to go around telling women they need to forgive their assaulters, or people of color that they need to forgive the police, for instance, without also advocating for legislation and changes to social norms that help balance out the power dynamics so that forgiveness can finally be given freely from a position of equal footing. And one of the ways we shift that power is through better use of apologies on both the personal and societal levels. And there's one major example of this that is why the abundance of Confederate statues and the relative lack of slave and lynching memorials is so destructive to our national psyche. It is a physical manifestation of one side refusing to apologize, which means that there can be no forgiveness given from a position of power. So the wounds remain open and healing cannot yet begin. 
Now, it just so happens my parents moved to Alabama last year, and I've been visiting them just this past week for the first time in their new place, and they asked what I wanted to do while I was here, and my only request was to go to the new Legacy Museum and the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. And let me tell you, white people, but especially white Southerners, but especially white Southerners who strongly feel that Confederate statues and monuments need to remain standing— should be walked through that museum and memorial like Germans were walked through the concentration camps. Not so they can be made to feel personally guilty for what happened in the past, if they had no hand in it, but so that they can understand the urgent need to help close that wound. Just like the police we heard from today, who recognize that the only way to move forward is to first make amends for the past. And you know, I, I think the funny thing uh, about modern-day white people in the old Confederacy is that they desperately want forgiveness. They might not frame it that way, don't get me wrong, but it is what they want. They want to be let off the hook. They want to stop being looked down on for the actions of their ancestors, and they have thought that the way to gain forgiveness— for all of that, is to normalize the Confederacy, to make it part of everyday life, to honor their heritage, as they call it, while downplaying the hate and, and rejecting the idea of hate, to emphasize that it was a different time back then and they shouldn't, you know, the ancestors shouldn't be held to modern standards. They've tried every trick in the book that they can think of to get that forgiveness that they do crave, except the one thing that would work, <laughs> systemic widespread and ongoing apologies in the form of literal public apologies from people like governors and mayors throughout the South, Confederate monument removals that could still be done respectfully and housed in museums to preserve the history, and the erection of memorials in honor of the victims of the Confederacy and its long tale of racial terrorism. And of course, this should all be coupled with policies that specifically work to fight against the types of injustices we've had in the past, such as affirming voting rights for all. Like, the southern states should be scrambling to enact the strongest voting rights measures. It should be a race to the top to see who could be the best at ensuring they are erasing the legacies left over from the Confederacy. Now, of course, that's not happening. So citizens of the South, do you continue to feel looked down on by the rest of the country and possibly the world? Well, it's not too late. Any generation of Southerners could be the one to turn it all around and become an example to the world of how to make amends the right way. Then just wait and see how fast that forgiveness you crave comes flowing your way. I guarantee it would work. And I think what they've gotten confused about is that they think defending the heritage of the Confederacy is some sort of sign of strength. And in reality, it's only a sign of power that betrays an enormous weakness and fear. The fear of admitting you're wrong, the fear of letting go of power, the fear of a future based on equality rather than white supremacy. But strength comes from a willingness to be vulnerable, not from holding on to power. You know, it's often said, Germany is full of memorials to the victims of the Holocaust, and they are one of the most respected countries in the world. This is not incidental. It's instrumental. One couldn't have happened without the other. So it's always been important, but maybe never more important now, at a time of 
unprecedented globalization of our society to relearn some of these most fundamental lessons of human interaction. Follow the golden rule, make amends, forgive, strive to cultivate strength rather than power, but when one has power, to use it for good, to share it, rather than to use it to oppress anyone else, because you have no idea how much you're actually going to hurt yourself, how much you're going to sap your own strength by using your power over others rather than with them. That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com